you do um, census forms, I don't know if you fill census forms, but mm -hmm. if you were to fill those out, would you, like, if I were to ask you where you're from? The Gambia. You say the Gambia. I always say the Gambia. Unequivocally. Unequivocally, because I think, uh, and I even, my friends know me as kind of controversial in that sense, where when we, you know, I, I used to I work um, in international settings, and you ask people where you're from, and people will say something like, oh, I'm Italian, or I am, like, American, and I'm like, guys, we're trying to, where are you from, from the continent? Because as of right now, we shouldn't just erase where we're from because, lineage, of, a, because yeah. of a passport that we gained. Right. Right? If I had kids in Canada, they could say that they're Canadian, but I expect my children to say they got me Canadian. I know it sounds crazy, but, uh, or whatever they are. Yeah, right? yeah, for sure. But for me, um, I love Canada. I love Toronto. I've, this, is, this has been my second home, but I am Gambian. And I'll always say that I am Gambian. Good morning, good day, or good evening, and welcome to 54 Lights. This show is typically dedicated to celebrating people of African heritage, a celebration of those in the continent and beyond. And while that often manifests in conversations focused on people from the margins, we must recognize that today, more than ever, we are all living a shared existence. We're closer than ever. Now, to be sure, um, saying that we are all on the margins is pure fiction. But to ignore our common circumstance in the midst of COVID-19 would be equally foolish. So today, and perhaps for a few episodes to come, I will be adding some brief thoughts about our current experiences. This might be a conversation with a guest about how they're living in the age of isolation, or just simply my perspective on what's going on. somewhat unorthodox for this show, but relevant given these strange times. For today, I'd like to start with a two-part conversation with my dear friend Binta. The first part is a quick catch-up we had just a few days ago, at the end of March, in light of COVID-19. And the second is my original episode recorded with her some months back. Now for context, I did meet Binta months ago, as I mentioned, and had planned to launch the recording of that conversation uh, during Women's Month, March 2020. You'll certainly hear references to that during our conversation and also in my uh, studio recording as well. But as I got set to push the episode live, a swarm of things happened. I was compelled to go to Europe on a personal matter that remains and is dear to my heart. And while I was there, a seemingly troublesome endemic virus flared into a raging pandemic. 
So best laid plans got shifted. Life matters took priority, have taken priority. And my thoughts, and, and hopefully the thoughts also of everybody listening to this, are first and foremost with loved ones. With that said, it's really an interesting time. A time when listening to podcasts is a great way to pass the time, a great way to meet and understand different and new people. Um, And in this case, or in this short case, um, a great way to understand how people are dealing with self-isolation and the time of COVID. So today's episode is both a check-in and a check-out. A temperature check on what's going on today and an escape to yesterday. A combination of two conversations with the same person, but taken at very different times. Here, in two parts, is my conversation with Binto. Part one, the check-in phone call. Hello? Hey, Binta. Hi. Since we last spoke, (laughs) the the world has kind of gone on, flipped on its It's collapsing around us. How has it been for you? Um... So I guess uh, the entire world knew about this new strain of the coronavirus around December mm-hmm. in China, mm-hmm. but it's interesting when something's far away from you, you know, you, you read about it, you log it, and you just kind of move on. Um, but because, like, my mom works for the WHO back home, you know, I'll get, I'll get the updates here and there. To see if it's gonna blow out of proportion, or if it's just another SARS or point flu type of situation. So, to be quite honest, I wasn't really concerned about it because maybe I'm in North America. Until like uh, my former colleagues in Rome, I have a lot of friends and colleagues that are still working in Italy. They're based there, and as the numbers blew up there, you started wondering, "Huh, what, what's really going on?" And I went on a trip. I went to Mexico. <laughs> like a week and a half ago. Oh my gosh. And yeah, but, but you know, everything was fine there. Like there was no sense of concern in Mexico, apart from the usual at the airport, right? Are you from these specific countries? Right. Um, so as soon as we, we with a bunch of girlfriends, went to Mexico, came back, and we've been self isolated since then. So um, it's been this is, I think, day nine or ten. I can't even remember. Then it's been something, and it also showed you the strength of humanity and the weakness of humanity. How online, all sorts of things are being said, um, the lies, the truth, it's frustrating. And also, hacking it back to our African continent, people are first joking, like, oh, black people don't have coronavirus. I'm like, what are you doing? Uh, what are you talking about? Yeah. You know, that, that sense of, oh, we don't have it yet, we will have it. Oh, yeah. And when it comes, we're not prepared for it, right? And it's happening right now where 
I mean, I'm from the Gambia, and they have, what, two, four, two or four cases, and I'm like, we can't handle it. We don't have the infrastructure in place. We don't have the health facilities in place. And, you know, like, self-isolation is something that most societies back home, it's very hard, right? Yeah. Like, the same with Italy. People live together, people mingle. I mean, it's the same as back home. So, yeah, it's... I'm just a little worried about how people are going to handle it, and if they take seriously to know that this is not a joke yeah it's it is it is interesting to see those reactions and i i heard yesterday i think that um india declared a, a state of emergency and a lot of people were like you know what like what is what is the i think it was per mr modi i'm not sure but it, yeah. who, who declared it and somebody else said well wait a minute they don't have the infrastructure to catch to to, to handle this like if you think if you think the north american uh, and European uh, healthcare systems will be strained. Like the Indian one will also be like just. Yeah, but it would just I, be a I calamity. Think, I think people will be surprised, huh? I think people discounting, um, quote unquote, southern like you know, people's countries in the south. I'm like, you might be surprised because um, they've had some, like you know, they had brushes with viruses and things like that, so they're more prepared than European countries. Like um, so I think for like the Ebola-stricken zone, especially in West Africa, I will assume that they'll be more prepared. Even though this is a whole different thing, this is kind of it's like a full virus. But at but, least they've um, dealt with something. At least that's yeah, close to it. Yeah, one would, one one would yeah. hope, one would hope in like five hours or whatever, like twelve right. hours or whatever it was. It just shows you how complex the world is and how connected the world is. Like China is not getting out of it. Um, as Europe is hard hit, um, I'm hoping that, like, uh, you know, we just flatten the curve so it wouldn't spike up. But uh, we'll see. I mean, the world is an interesting place where. You never know, but I guess then again, experts have been warning about this for the longest time that there will be a next, there will be a pandemic, yeah. which is about when. So, I guess it's now. Twenty twenty, it is. Um, maybe the last thing I'll ask you, Binta, just because I don't want to take up too much of your time, even though time is, we, we've got time, but we don't have time anyways. Uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes I'm like, we, we got all the time in the world, but we don't. Um, yeah. Your your mom's work at uh, at the UN, and, and she works with the WHO, right? Yeah, but she but she's a local staff back in Gambia. Right. So. But has has this all given you a different perspective of what she does now? No, not 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 really because I don't know because because WHO, what all they would do is just talk to governments and give them advice, and you know. It's just interesting. Yeah. She's doing excellent work. She has been doing excellent work, but this is this is going to be a new challenge for her in the office. Yeah. But I think they're preparing for it. That's what they called in this question. Oh, yeah. I tell you, I don't know that anybody is really prepared for it. But I, That's the thing, because today she, I talked to her, she said, yeah, you know, we have to go to the market to get groceries. I'm like, what is wrong with you? And she's like, right. Because 
on one hand, she is, you know, UN employee working for WHO. On the other hand, she's still a mother and a wife. For and sure. Like a, yeah. And like a, like a homeowner. So, you know, you can just see the split between what she needs to do or what she actually wants to do. Well, here in Canada, I mean, I didn't go out since last Monday because I could I order online. I could order my goods online. These are things that don't exist at home. 100%. Yeah, it's a it's a very different dynamic. And it's like you said, you know, we've gotta be thankful for the the things that we can do. We have to check out privilege. Oh my gosh, yeah. You know, I was sitting here, it's like, yeah, we can actually put on Netflix in the evening and just binge watch. I am bored. I'm bored. And I'm like, there's some people that can't even afford to do that, like the healthcare workers, right? There's times that are like, oh my god, I'm so bored. Like they have to be in the front line. Part two. The originally intended interview from the pre-COVID days. My name is Kumbawani Mwase, and today's episode is The Daughter's Footsteps. My guest for today, Binta, inspired me to make two adjustments to the 54 Light schedule. First and foremost, this episode is our official Black History Month episode. Now, it's somewhat odd for an Afrocentric podcast to have a special show on Black History Month because, well, every episode is a celebration of Black history, really. Sometimes in the real-time making, let's say. With that said, I'd like to dedicate this episode to Black History Month. Black history needs to be celebrated more than one month per year. This brings me to the second change that Binta compelled me to make. Thanks to her, I will be releasing an episode on shattering the glass ceiling on March 8th in honor of International Women's Day. As you'll soon hear, this bright young woman has a way of forcing you to reflect and, in my case, to change. So, Binta is my first name and Bajaha is my last name. Um, I'm from the Gambia. We don't necessarily, oh, probably we've lost the meanings of our names. So, um, it's a large Muslim population. So, Binta means daughter in Arabic. Oh, is it? Which, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so when I meet people from the Middle East or people that speak Arabic, they're like, but bint what? What does yeah, that mean? Daughter what, of who? Yeah. I'm like, when Islam came over, guys, this is it. This is what this happens. This is all we had. We had binta and that was it. So Interesting. Are you um, are you an only child? No, I'm the eldest. You're the I'm eldest? I'm the eldest of five. Oh, okay. So it's five of us. Mm-hmm. I'm the eldest and I have four siblings. I've got a, like a, a really stupid question, mm-hmm. but is it... The Gambia, or is it Gambia? And the I hear Gambia. both. It is the Gambia. It, it is the Gambia. Okay, because now I'm getting it from the source. Because yeah. I'm like, oh my god, I've heard the Gambia before in Gambia. It's unfortunate. But... Like it is the Gambia because the um, it's it's named after the river Gambia, mm-hmm. so hence mm-hmm. the Gambia. But a lot of people just say Gambia, and yeah. I'm like, it's the Gambia. If I were to ask you what your connection to the Gambia is now that you've been in Canada for for a while, yeah, I've been in Canada <laughs> this year. Only um, half my life, but I've been outside of the Gambia half my life. I'll say. Um, I go back home every year because my entire family is there. I am very Gambian. I mean, in a sense that I would like to believe that I am, even though 
you know, you know, the diaspora. The, we the, have the a different illusion world. Yeah. Of when you say I'm so Gambian, you go back to Gambia. Like, oh, I don't know. So yeah, they um, don't treat you like a Gambian. Exactly, yeah. they treat you like an outsider. And mm-hmm. You're like, I am not an outsider. But yes, I I go back home every year. My mom and my dad are there. They're working there. They're yeah. just, that's where home is, right? Would you move back to the Gambia? Oh yeah, for sure. To live. Oh yeah. Um, I do believe, like, I didn't leave Gambia to um, necessarily to live outside of other of another country for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I've um, I was I came to pursue a higher education because that's what unfortunately happens for people that you know people in a specific class they leave Gambia to pursue a higher education. Um, so the the idea is Canada doesn't need me right. as Gambia will need me. Right. Right. America right. doesn't need. Now that Europe needs me, right? They have the amazing people already. Gambia has amazing people, right? But it's such a small population that um, anyone that could go back home and be part of that is great. Gambia is a relatively small country in Western Africa. It won independence from Britain in February of 1965. It has a population of around 2 million inhabitants and is bordered by Senegal. In November of 2019, the Gambia filed a case at the International Criminal Court of Justice against Myanmar. That case is now known as the Rohingya Genocide and pertains to the persecution by Myanmar of the people and group known as the Rohingya. It is a landmark case brought by a small, small country. Little giants indeed. If I would ask you to put a label on what you do, mm-hmm. what would that label be? It would be a very broad label because um, I will first and foremost say that I am a humanitarian at heart, um, but I am more of a gender humanitarian person. I will say my passion is in gender equality, gender development um, within the humanitarian world. My mother works for um, the UN back in Gambia as a, as a national staff. Um, I've always felt that I, I will work for the United Nations. Mm-hmm. I don't know in what capacity, I don't know where, but right. I always like the idea. Right. But I like the idea more of what I saw on TV, right? Which yeah. as a child, you just say, oh my God, look at all these amazing people. Because the Gambia, fortunately for us, we don't have any crisis. Yeah. That requires a large humanitarian operation, yeah. and I hope we never. Yeah, which is a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> I hope course. we never yeah. do that. So, oh, you know, you watch the news and you're like, people are making changes. People are like um, influencing lives. They're changing lives. They're doing their part. And I think it's very humbling when you're part of a organization, a huge organization, that you are just part of the puzzle. You're just a little piece doing yeah. your little part to make sure the machine works. Um. You you mentioned gender studies, right? Um, so that's my that's my um, specialization that's my, that's my or specialty. Yeah. specialty. Where does that um, where does that come from? 
Um, obviously, you're a woman, so I think you yeah. have a vested interest in that. But but still, I think it took um, it took post my undergrad for because gender studies was not even a thing or available within the university that I actually went to. Like you have courses here and there, but you I tend to be like there was this trend within the humanitarian world of looking looking at gender and like analyzing gender and figuring out how best to serve people. Mm-hmm. And for me, when people link it back to being a woman, I was like, of course we have so much to offer. We have as much to offer as anybody else in order to um, to change our nation space, to change the continent, which is the African continent, to mm-hmm. change what people call the global south. We have to be able to put the other half of the population. Without it, forget it. But I didn't grow up, like my grandmother and my grandfather, they kind of separated. So I didn't grow up. My dad, from my paternal side, my grandfather died way before I was born. So I was always surrounded by strong black women. I mean, it was my grandma. That was it. She was both grandmother and grandfather. And my mother, you know, um, she was the, she is still the backbone of the family. So I was always surrounded by extremely strong women that were doing and could do much more amazing things than the men in positions of power. So from there, the passion and the interest started. And I figured, um, since I think I would like to be a pragmatic individual, you go to school, you get the experience, and you go back to school. (laughs) That's why I'm back in school. (laughs) (laughs) To hone your experience, and then you'll be able to talk about it. You'll be able to um, not only have the theoretical knowledge, you'll have the practice, like meaning you've gone through um, you've gone through events, you've gone through um, programs that will allow you to say, hey guys, this A, B, and C is the reason why we could get to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, right? right? So, Do you think that uh, maybe for somebody who's sort of worked in, in the fields that you have, you think that there's actually been a legitimate progression when it, in terms of gender in um, society in general? I think that that's an incredibly broad question. Right. but. So progression of gender in society, I mean, people are talking about it more. Mm-hmm. People are definitely talking about it more. It's within government policies, it's, it's national, local, you know, agenda. However, are we making the progress that we need to make to get to the goals that we claim we're going to get to? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I mm-hmm. think there's a long way to go. And even within gender, it's not only about women, it's about the men as well, right? So um, how are toxic masculinity affecting right. the population? How is the burden of well, you know what being a man is mm-hmm. and what being a woman is. So we have to be able to explicate those type of um, expectations and support both genders and both sexes in ways that um, will be for the entire good of the nation. Of both, yeah. yeah. Right. So are we where we need to be? No. I think most people pay lip service. I mean, if you're empowering people, you have to actually give them power. And I find that when it comes to gender, um, it's very important to it's very important to be sensitive as to the way we go about it. And the reason why I am trying to um, solidify myself in this humanitarian space is, you know, the same narrative. We are going to save these racialized bodies. And the we are always, almost always, white bodies. So you want to break that cycle in the sense that um, we're not saving anybody. We go into a place, we ask the women themselves, what do you guys need? 
what do you know? How can you teach us to expand our knowledge on gender equality, on gender equity? How do you do it? Instead of the other way that we're going to tell you what to do. I'm always curious, and like again, I'm going to uh, you know, sh show my blind spot here, but where is the place for men in this dialogue? Um, as equal partners. When people hear the word feminism or like gender, they're like, oh my God, it's about women, it's about displacing men. It's about correcting what was wrong. And when I talk about having a balance is the man's responsibility is to be able to give space and give way and support a woman the same way you support a man. It could be the woman will go um, in, some, in some specific areas, some women don't even have access to work right but they work all the time at home it's about having giving that woman allowing that woman to have that access to go outside the home and work and when she comes back both of you could share responsibilities mm -hmm. or maybe she wants to take all the responsibility within the household i am also not with i'm not that type of feminist that will say she should you know everything should be shared people should do what they need to do to get to their potential if their potential is, I want to go to school, I want to do this, I don't want to get married at 12, I don't need my sexuality to be um, curtailed because of my gender. People need to do things that they are capable of doing, and most people are actually very, very good at doing things that um, once given the opportunity. So for me, um, a man's responsibility is always thinking about what space are you occupying? Are you occupying too much of the space mm -hmm. that a woman cannot be part of that space? And also for women, what type of woman are you? Are you occupying too much of the space and right. not allowing another woman or another man that's fortunate that you are to occupy that right. space, right? It's being aware of the, the, the oxygen and the space that you're taking. Thank you. Right. Okay. okay. It's being aware of, um, I think that's the, you know, it's just being aware of the, the space you occupy and the responsibility that you have to make sure that others also have that opportunity. Fantastic. Very well said. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to kind of turn the page mm -hmm. from uh, um, to uh, Black History Month. So I'm talking to you right. now, technically in February, right. which is Black History Month, um, which is more sort of a, you know, I guess it, it's more yeah. it's more celebrated in North America, North America. than it than it is, right. I think, other places. Um, but maybe you can tell me about what Black History Month means to to Binta, mm -hmm. like to you. Um, Okay, so the first time I came across Black History Month was 2005 when I moved to Canada. I had never heard of Black History Month. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it was it, it was kind of interesting to talk to those that grew up in Canada or, or Black Canadians and try to be like, I don't... I don't get it. I, I don't know what this is. I just don't get it. But of course, over time, as I got, you know, you get older, you kind of expand your knowledge on, as to the struggles, as to the resistance like that African-Americans and black Canadians and, you know, and those from the diaspora that has, that have contributed so much um, to, I mean, the world, huh? because I, I personally believe that um, the status of the world today will not, cannot be, the story cannot be told without the labor and struggles and thought and resistance of black people. I've always celebrated my blackness. I've always celebrated with people that um, we lived our blackness because we were always in a space that allowed us to live our blackness. But I do understand the importance of it. 
so maybe this is, I was going to ask in a different way, but do you think it's more important for um, Afro-Canadians or is it more important for, for, for lack of a better word, for, for everybody else? I think it's, I think Black History Month, my, I don't have an issue with it, but I think Black History Month will be more powerful if it's not a month done um, as if we are celebrating something for the, for the white gays. Personally, okay, okay. If that, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you, you you have a month that you dedicate to that's dedicated to Black History, and it's as if we're performing the month for others to see what we are and we what what we're doing. Whilst um, that should be on an everyday basis. Yeah, that, that that's funny that you say it that way because right. that's that was going to be one of my questions is to say it's so I like interesting that it's a month. It's a month. Um, I I kind of. Honestly, I get, I'm like, you know, there's a time where you want to be like, okay, we're going to celebrate ABC, but blackness is so expansive. It's so rich. It cannot possibly fit into a 28, or if we're lucky, a 29-day month. So th this idea of the um, sort of performance for a, for a white gaze, mm -hmm. or for a, sorry, for a non-black gaze, essentially, right. do you think that that's, Again, coming back to what you said before, is there a little bit of lip service in there just to sort of like, hey, we've checked the box, we've celebrated, we've done something for Black History Month, yada, yada, yada. Now it is becoming like that. Now it is becoming, oh, what are we going to do? Which Black artists, which Black mm -hmm. poets are we going to get for Black History Month? And at the end of the day, it, it disappears. I wish it was it was a month that we celebrate historical figures, we celebrate like um, the greatness of people, of Afro-Canadian or African-Americans or, you know, people in... in the diaspora per se, but since it's a North American based celebration, I think it should be expanded. Yeah. So do you think there's a level of, I'm, I'm, you're going to make me think, rethink about what to do with this episode of the podcast, <laughs> yeah. but isn't yeah, that, put it like I, I was going to say, yeah, exactly. That's, that's where <laughs> I'm going with it. Is, is, <laughs> isn't, but no, isn't there a part of even, um, I guess, black people who feed into that, of course. into that narrative and, by. And because I am not. And because I am not African, I'm not Afro-Canadian. I'm right. not African-American. I am not from, like, you know, I have my roots somewhere. Mm -hmm. So I do have the privilege to say, well, I still live my blackness every time, right? Mm -hmm. um, but being um, an immigrant in Toronto, um, I could see how someone living in Toronto, growing up in Toronto, this, or any other Canadian city, it's, you, you, you will, it's very important to be able to have your kin. And if this is a, if this is making kin, like making kinship and making brotherhood and sisterhood, then by all means, I am for it. I just want and wish it continued. Beyond it goes beyond that. February. February yeah. we do the big celebration, but every day we're mentoring young people. We're connecting with them. We are listening to podcasts that you know that is giving us another example of blackness and extending what what black what black history means and actually doing black history because black history doesn't start from slavery there's a history <laughs> beyond that. that there's a history before, or before that before sorry. that yeah. there's a history after that and so i feel for black history it cannot just be on civil rights it should be on the greatness on our mistakes on our vulnerability on our resistance on the beauty of being black it's right. complex right so it for is. me i'm like it has to be the real thing so we could build up um, a theoretical like um, heaviness 
that we could carry on to beyond, beyond Black History. So that's really interesting because my next question was going to be the same question, but in relation to because you're like gender, uh, you're le you like, but you're in the gender field, if right. you will, gender humanitarian field. Um, I was thinking about asking that same question as it pertained to like National Women's Day, which is oh, in North yeah, yeah uh, inter or International Women's International Day, Women's March Day. 8th. Isn't that maybe the same, or is it? Is um, it the same? You see it the same way. So for me, Black History Month is a North American, specific to North America. I'll give you a little history of International Women's Day. Mm -hmm. The first was done, I think, 1919 in Russia, okay. um, in USSR, right? Communist um, Russia. Russia, yeah. To celebrate the equality of women and their, um, um, what do I call it? And their contribution to the revolution. Because mm -hmm. right? okay. communism is about communism, like equal and all. Um, so that's the like that was the beginning of, and then but the global aspect of it was in the seventies, where the UN, you know, decade of women, decade of women from the eighties and da da da. I think it's important. However, it's also like lip service. Mm -hmm. But I think also it, we hope to get to a time where we'll not we will not be celebrating these days. That's we don't need to. We don't need to. Like I always say that um, my job um, or, or like my field is something that I hope will be obsolete. The you're a very interesting person because you work with what I would call the institutionalized side of things. Because right. you're working on policy, and I could sorry, it could be wrong. So on that. okay, so I'll just give you like a little um, trajectory. So I worked for the UN, the United Nations. I worked for UN Women in New York. There was policy. Then I worked for the World Food Program in Rome, mm -hmm. the headquarters in Rome, and then I moved to Bangladesh, where mm -hmm. I worked with the Rohingya refugees. So it was from policy level, high level, or program level, then down to actual meeting up with the Rohingyas and talking to people that affect the host community and those that are affected about if they're getting access to um, what they need, are their needs being met? Are we as the UN doing things that we say we set it out to do, right? It's okay. in the humanitarian principle. And now I'm back, uh, I, I left my job because I decided to pursue a doctoral degree, but focusing on the impacts of climate change in West Africa. Okay. And the resistance and vulnerability and the realities of that, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I'm still under the gender topic, broader, including like environmental changes. But um, uh, yeah, so more, more so I balance like the policy aspect of it as well as the programmatic aspect. And I hope in the future to do both because policy is where, you know, all the big decisions are made. And it's unfortunate when it comes to the African continent, people that are creating the policies are those that are that have no idea what they're talking about. I was going to say, but it's funny, I have a friend of mine, a really close friend of mine who's a lawyer, mm -hmm. and sometimes he talks to me about the law, and sometimes we get into these discussions where I feel that there's an incredible disconnect between the institution of law oh and the practical and the application of what, what that means but to can people you, in the street. But can you imagine, so if a structure like the United Nations is funded by specific countries that basically won World War II, Right? Those have the Security Council. And then every decision is made by Western powers mm -hmm. because they have the money. So you have someone sitting in New York or D.C. or Rome or what, wherever the headquarters are making decisions about things a, that are a theoretical. Ten, a 10-year policy yeah. from what they think. And they're incredible people, but they do have blind spots. 
And right. the blind spot is usually blind spots to racialized bodies and to women's bodies. Right. You have someone sitting up in New York, setting up a paper, then, you, then the paper goes down to regional bureaus and country offices, and they make, then they, they execute on they it. They deal with it. Yeah. But how do you deal with it if you don't know the people? Hmm. How do you deal with it if the bodies and the powers that might be are the same people over and over again? Why can't we have more young African people, young African voices, being at positions of power? or being up influential positions, or at least have their voices being heard. Because um, I'm from a country that the Gambia is like so tiny. We are like nobodies in the world. Small, yeah. <laughs> so What's the population of the Gambia? Now it's like 2 million. Okay. Um, so if something happened in the Gambia, the policies are not coming from Gambia. Mm-hmm. They're going to come from Washington, D.C. or New York City. Of course. So, but if we had people like yourself, if we had people that had a diverse group, thinking mm-hmm. that if anything happens to any country and they need loans and they need um, assistance, it will be done in a way that is most culturally sensitive and more appropriate for that country. So for me, the UN as an institution, some people hate on it, they have all right to, but it's an important institution and we just have to change the way it's being run. So there you have it. The conversation continues. Pick a cause within the humanitarian umbrella. Yeah. Gender, poverty, food. Oh my god, you talked about all the things that we talked about since but where yeah. I used to work was food security, I know. <laughs> gender equality, and like ending poverty. But if I was to choose, I will say Hmm. I think I think food and ge- food because if every if everybody has access to the kilo calories that they need, you you have unleashed their potential. Pick one: New York, Toronto. I've lived in all the three major cities you mentioned. My favorite city is, is Abidjan. Somebody that I somebody that I respect, of course, is my mother. And not because she's but I think everybody will say because of their mother. My mother has like tenacity mm-hmm. and gut that I can't really imagine. Like this woman has made sure that all her children despite the financial difficulties or despite the financial um, the expectations, she always wanted the best one. She always wanted the best one. And I know that. My mom has my best interest at heart. So if I could be, if I could love someone half, I thought my mother would love me. Then I, I'm a pretty good friend or mother or, or, daughter, whatever. or somebody or whatever. I'd like to thank everyone who's participated in today's show, be they behind the scenes or on the mic. Part of our show was recorded and produced at Corner Studios with the assistance of our producer, John Kitt. Music for this episode was composed, played, and enjoyed with permission by Joachim Nortebert and Andy Ninbaum. If you like what you've heard, there's more. 
follow us on Instagram and Twitter under our handle, Crowd54. Remember, you can find us wherever you do your listening. iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and that's just a few of them. Listen, like, share. Until we meet again. Thanks for listening.